0: They الحمد لله the only one beating this woman up. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا the لولا أن هدانا الله وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده the شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن shay'in عبد Wa ورسوله had وخليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرا وبشيرا. لقد كان لكم في رسول الله have to لمن كان we الله واليوم الآخر وذكر الله كثيراً. to يطيع الله ورسوله have الأمر من المؤمنين فقد رشد. ومن يعص الله ورسوله واولي الامر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا اوصيكم ونفسي اولا بتقوى الله وطاعته واحذركم من عصيانه وَمُخَالَفَةِ امره اما بعد فان خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم يا اهل الكتاب لا تغلو في دينكم ولا تقولوا على الله الا الحق انما المسيح عيسى ابن مريم رسول الله وكلمته القاها الى مريم وروح منه فَآمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرُسُلِهِ وَلَا تَقُولُوا ثَلَاثَةَ انتهوا خَيْرًا لَكُمْ إِنَّمَا اللَّهُ إِلَهٌ وَاحِدٌ سُبْحَانَهُ أَن يَكُونَ لَهُ وَلَدٌ لَهُ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَكَفَى بِاللَّهِ وَكِيلًا Brothers and sisters, committed Muslims This coming week is the one week out of the year which is supposed to be dedicated to peace on earth and goodwill towards men obviously the Muslims are not going to be a party to such invocations of peace for they haven't seen any peace In the past weeks, the past months, the past years and even in the past decades Nonetheless, these ayat, or this particular ayah which is the 177th ayah out of Surah an nisa This ayah was revealed for all who would listen Even though the particular subject of the ayah is aimed at a particular suite from the people of scripture, from the people of previous scripture. In particular, those who consider themselves to be adherents to the Bible and the New Testament in particular. In the formative stages of Christian theology, which would be in the few years after Isa السلام, passed into heavenly company, in those few years, as Christianity was beginning to develop its theology, to take it out of its infancy, as it were. It was all of a sudden hijacked by what may be called today Israeli material theology. And it is to this material theology and the extremism that's associated with it that this ayah and similar ayat in the Quran came to address, and so a rough translation of the beginning of that ayah, of this ayah, which again is the 177th ayah in Surah An-Nisa, saying to the adherents of the Bible, the New Testament in particular, that do not go to extremes in so far as your Deen is concerned. And do not attribute to Allah that which is not just and true For indeed the Messiah, Jesus the son of Mary Was nothing but a prophet of Allah And a fulfillment of a promise That was made to his mother Maryam And a soul that was created by Allah And so Commit yourselves To Allah And his prophets His apostles And do not say Trinity Be done with it For that is better for you. Indeed, Allah is the one God. And remote is He from all possibility of having begotten a son. To Him belongs all that is in the heavens and in the earth. And so we were saying that In the formative years after the passing on Of Isa Saddam to heavenly company That Christian theology was overtaken by Jewish material theology Now what does this mean? Well when it became known That Isa was born that Jesus was born of a virgin birth this caused some kind of a hullabaloo at the time (laughs) that there were those who accused Maryam of being a prostitute or having illicit sexual relations they could not conceive of the notion that Allah could create a life without a father and so they put pressure on the early Christians to come up with an explanation and under the heat of that pressure the early Christians came up with the notion of the father and the son and so thus began this notion of the Trinity Now keep in mind that the ayah that I just quoted was revealed 700 years after this controversy started. And by the time this ayah was revealed, the dominant Christian church, the institutional Christian church, had already settled upon a theological doctrine of the Trinity. but this didn't sit well with a lot of its early scholastic uh, of, with a lot of its early theological scholars and the, and what i mean here is the early christian theological scholars they could just not accept any rationalization or justification for a concept where three persons were involved in one or one nature was distributed across three Or you had three natures in one substance they had a very hard time explaining it and they had a harder time accepting these explanations from others especially when the history of scripture had never broached such a topic in the past and so the early christian scholars they grappled not only with the Trinity, but they also grappled with this notion of a triunity, Which was also problematic for them. Because they had a hard time explaining how a unity could be part of a Trinity or how a Trinity could be part of a unity. In the first 100 years, after the passing of Isa a.s., Jesus Christ, The Christian scholars came up with this notion of a bi-trinity. Where the bi-trinity was just represented by the Father and the Son. But by the time that the Council of Nicaea was convened, in about the year 325, the notion of a full-blown trinity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was already all over the airwaves. And so it wasn't much of a stretch for them to confirm this particular concept as the foundational concept of the Christian canon, along with the four Gospels that formulate a good part of the New Testament. And so the problem of having to explain the Trinity, what it means, never really went away. In fact, this is the problem, this is the controversy that has accompanied Christianity from its very inception. And so we come to the modern day and we're still asking the same questions. Is it three persons in one substance? Is it one nature that's distributed across three substances? Is it one substance in three natures? Or is it vice versa? And then insofar as the Christ child himself is concerned, did he have a divine nature? Or did he have a human nature? Or did he have aspects of both? Was it more divine or was it more human? And there are hundreds... Of other questions of this nature and so in the modern day this has boiled down to something that might be called a logical dualism and so what does this mean well if you ask Christian theologians Did Jesus Christ get tired? And so they will tell you that as God, no, but as a human, yes, he could get tired. And if you ask them, did Jesus Christ get hungry? And they will say that as God, he has no needs, and so therefore he can't be hungry. But as man, yes, he would hunger and he would eat. And then if you ask them, did Jesus Christ know everything? They say, well, of course, Well, as God, he's, He would be omniscient, and therefore He would know everything. But as man, He Himself said that He would want to grow in wisdom. And then finally, if you ask them, did Jesus Christ sin? And they would say, well, as God, He can't sin. But as a human, it is possible for him to sin but he didn't sin so it is this kind of back and forth that the Quran came to straighten out because this had been going on for a good 650 to 700 years in the Christian world to the extent that it had led to wars and it had led the trinity oriented catholic church to go out and exterminate all rivals for in the beginning of the history of christianity there were a lot of principled christians that did not agree with the concept of the trinity in fact they held to the unity of Allah they said that he was one without partners without rivals without competitors and the catholic church for lack of better words went out and basically exterminated all rivals and so by the time of the revelation of these ayat in the Quran though the controversy had not gone away a lot of the military excursions against all rivals had been almost brought to a conclusion But as I'm saying, the questions still persisted in the minds of of Christians. And so as we said, the Qur'an came to straighten out this, uh, one of its objectives was to straighten out this controversy. And we have to understand that one of the ways the Qur'an differs from previous renditions of scripture is that the Quran is considered to be a muhkam revelation and by muhkam what is meant is that it came to confirm and corroborate whatever was left of previous revelations that was true but at the same time it came to correct whatever human incursion was made into those revelations it came to correct whatever the hand of man wrote by himself as part of those revelations. And so when the Qur'an was revealed, a lot of those Christians, basically who were concentrated in and around the Holy Land, in North Africa, and in some other parts of the Christian world, who still held on to a Unitarian view of God and the Godhead. As soon as these ayat were revealed, it settled the whole entire controversy for them. And they came very reflexively and very easily into Islam. And that is why the majority of Christians in North Africa, in the Holy Land, and in surrounding parts, in what is now Turkey, the vast majority of these Christians became Muslims. All the questions about Isa were answered for them. All the notion about the controversy of the trinity was answered for them. And so they very easily became Muslims. But those who were prone to this kind of Christian extremism which is addressed by this ayah, ya ahl al-kitab la taghlu fi dinikum. Those who were addressed by this ayah they were concentrated in what is now Europe. And so they had a very hard time due to their extremism to accept the Qur'anic notions of Prophethood and the Qur'anic revelation with regard to the oneness and the uniqueness of Allah. And so in that mix, they developed this notion of theocracy. But before we get into trying to understand how this, theocracy, this notion of theocracy emerged out of their theological extremism, let us go back to the fact and let us confirm in our own minds that Allah is superior to anything and everything. But His superiority does not confer arrogance. And at the same time, we have to confirm and affirm the fact that relative to Allah, that human beings are inferior. But their inferiority does not confer humiliation. And insofar as the Qur'an is concerned, it confirms the oneness and the uniqueness of Allah clearly, emphatically and repeatedly. In fact, it goes to such an extent as saying that human beings have no entry onto the divine platform. There is no association in that regard between the divine And the human. Human beings, they give nothing to Allah. Human beings satisfy no need of Allah. He has no needs. But on the other hand, Allah Ta'ala is the one who satisfies the needs of human beings. He is the one who created human beings. He is the one who created the universe in which human beings survive and thrive in. And every prophet that was dispatched by Allah came to confirm and affirm this certainty. In the Islamic disciplining of the human conscience, there was never or there was hardly ever an institution such as the church that imposed its particular view of Scripture on an excluded mass of people. There was no parallel in Islamic history to this so-called divine right of kings. In fact, insofar as Islamic, insofar as the Islamic frame of reference is concerned, There is no such thing as theocracy. Even s- even though in the modern world, any attempt at is as Islamic govern any attempt at Islamic governance is characterized by European and American political scientists as a theocracy. Just the fact that they call Saudi Arabia and Islamic Iran the both of them together, theocracies, ought to be enough for them to realize the folly of their characterization. But nonetheless, in the world today, the only time that we hear the word theocracy is when Muslims attempt to consolidate an Islamic society under an Islamic government. And we hear that characterized as a theocracy. But such a characterization is problematic. And it's problematic for several reasons and I'll just go into two of them. The first is that in the European view of human history and and humanity there is only one essential history in all of that humanity. And that essential history is European history. That every other history in the world, past and present, has to be interpreted through the lens of the European experience. And thus, it is the European experience that is normal and that is normalized. And so if the Europeans went through a certain kind of a struggle in their history, or they went through a certain kind of institutional policy in that history and if they see that other people are trying to engage in what may be characterized as a unique rendition of their own policy based on their own culture, their own history and perhaps their own revelation then they look at that through the lens of their own history and they characterize those systems and those governments according to the European experience in the way that the European experience is presented in words, thoughts, and ideas. This is not the of faith. And so if a people rely on a divine commitment as the basis of the formulation of their government, then the Europeans and the Americans characterize that as a theocracy. But what we ought to recognise that when you have an Islamic government, an Islamic administration, an Islamic rule of law, that this Islamic rule of law invites popular participation to contribute its intellectual and intelligent understanding of Scripture. But if we look at the origin of theocracy, we see that it does not invite the mass participation of the common people into the decision-making process that is normally restricted to an elite amongst the people. If we look at the origin of the word theocracy, it comes from the Greek word Theokratia, which means the rule of God. And so in the Euro-Western conception of theocracy, the people are to be ruled directly by God. And so any notion of of a participatory rule where average human beings, where normal human beings contribute of their own intelligence and their own interaction with Scripture, to the decision-making process. This is something that was unknown in European theocracy. And thus, it is parochial and it is childish to characterize Muslims using the divine guidance to manage their affair in life, to characterize whatever Muslims are doing as a theocracy. But nonetheless, This kind of direct rule by God is traceable to Old Testament Israel. The first time that this word theocracy was used in a public discourse was by by the ancient historian Josephus. And we need to understand this history so that when we see these words thrown around in the public forum of ideas today, that we can sort of try to recognize what's going on. Nonetheless, this this term was used for, for the very first time by the ancient historian Josephus. And he used it to characterize the government of Musa. And at the same time, he distinguished it from monarchy and democracy. But what's important here is to emphasize the fact that popular human engagement, that means the engagement of the public, with the decision making process and with the interpretation of scripture was not part and parcel of the European experience with theocracy in fact they regarded the prophets to be simply human agents that were doing the will of God that in fact God was a ruler and that he was ruling through these human agents and to fast forward and to the present day, all of us are familiar with with, with feudalism. Well, the very foundations of feudalism started with this European experience of theocracy. It was this European theocracy that laid the groundwork for the feudalism that we saw throughout the ages and the feudalism that we even see today in the third world. So for the better portion of a 1,000 to 1,200 years, the European mind and the European body politic was looking for a simple, uncomplicated, straightforward relationship with God. And with the church, it was not able to find such a relationship. But Europe, in its dark ages, And in its middle ages, happened to be in contact with a very vibrant Islamic civilization that was on its periphery. In North Africa, in Spain, in Central Asia. And so when it came in contact with this Islamic civilization, it saw that these Muslims had a simple and uncomplicated relationship with God. And that not only did they have this relationship, they were able to translate this into public policy. And that there was a sense of equality amongst all of the citizens of the Islamic body politic and that they all contributed to the decision making process. And so this had sort of a revolutionary impact on the history of Europe in the Middle Ages. And this ultimately is what gave birth to the Protestant Reformation and the Industrial Revolution and the Scientific Revolution. And so in the Islamic frame of reference it is the divinity that reveals an impeccable law. And it is up to humanity to interpret that law. But humanity must have the understanding that its interpretation is going to have flaws. But that it can correct these flaws through its ambition for improvement and through its ambition for constantly aligning itself with Allah's guidance. And so one may ask, okay, what does this have to do with us with us Muslims today? Well, we Muslims, we tend to take a look at these ayat, this particular ayah and ayat that are similar to it. We tend to take a look at this these ayat. And we think that it applies to them, but not to us. We reject the possibility that we could be subject to the same tendencies of extremism that they were subject to, and thereby we could be subject to the same pitfalls and consequences. In a sense, it could be said that we Muslims have alienated ourselves from the history and continuity of scripture. Because we consider the Jews and the Christians to be the scriptural other in this equation. But as Muslims, if you're reading the Qur'an properly, we know that all of these ayat are presented to us so that we don't fall and we don't suffer the same consequences that they suffered by drifting into this kind of extremism. Note that the operative word in this ayah, Ya Kitab, La Ta'ghlu Fi Dinikum. Note that the, operative, that the operative word is Ghulu. And Ghulu in Arabic means fanaticism, extremism, exceptionalism, xenophobia, and all of those other words that sort of define this domain and so just because we have people of previous scripture, some of whom say that their prophet had divine characteristics and others of whom go to the other extreme and say that he was not a prophet at all so just because we have people of scripture saying these things that doesn't mean that we are not subject to the same tendencies for we have Muslims today some of whom use the word khilafa exclusively or the word khalifa exclusively to define or or characterize the leader of the Muslims but they are so loose in the use of this designation that they also include kings princes and presidents within the definition of the word khalifa and so as a reaction to this we have the other side of our mind which uses the word imam exclusively but it goes to an extreme by saying that these imams have divine qualities that they are infallible and others of them say that, that they make no mistakes and on the same hand to counter this position of the imams being masoom or infallible the other side, the the, the first side of our mind goes back and says, well, no, it's not people that are infallible, it's the ummah that's infallible. And they rely on a hadith to justify their position. But what both sides are not recognizing and what they should ought to be asking themselves, if they're willing to sort of look at these ayat and know that all people of Scripture are subject to extremist tendencies, what they ought to be asking themselves, is it possible to have an imam without an ummah or is it possible to have an ummah without an imam? And if they broach that question, perhaps there's room for synergy between the two. And in this regard, and I'll end with the first part with this, Allah's Prophet warned us when he said the following, Iyakum fi فِي din Okay, what that means, and this is the Prophet advising the community of Muslims around him that I caution you against aggressive, uh, against extremist tendencies in your deen. For it was this kind of fanaticism that caused the people before you to perish Alhamdulillah, a salat of salamu ala Rasulillah. So, what does this have to do with us today? As many of you are well aware that. the chief executive in this country was charged with high crimes and misdemeanors that doesn't mean that he'll be removed from office but nonetheless he was formally charged with high crimes and misdemeanors, that's what impeachment means and so there's a particular publication in the country, it's called Christianity Today It's a leading evangelical publication. And in the popular political culture here in the States, the en- evangelicals are considered to be ardent supporters of this particular president. But in one of the one of the leading evangelical publications, Christianity Today. The editor-in-chief wrote an editorial where he endorsed the removal of this president from office either at the polls or by a formal trial in one of the halls of Congress in this country. And in justifying his position, the editor in chief said, in effect, and he wrote a you know a very long editorial in this regard, but in effect he said that this particular chief executive is morally unfit for office. Okay, so I don't think that's news to anyone. But let me ask the question That of the elected leaders in the Muslim world Are we asking the same question How many of them Are morally fit For the office they were elected to Now obviously I'm not talking about Those people who happen to be ruling in the Muslim world Who are unelected All of us recognize and this is not too much of a stretch. All of us recognize that that all of the unelected leaders are morally unfit for office. Just the fact that they're ruling and not endorsed by their people makes them un- morally unfit for office. But there are a few leaders in the Muslim world who have been elected to office. And the reason that I bring this up is that A conference, a conclave of Muslim leaders took place just this past Wednesday. And the idea or the notion of having such a conference was born when many of these leaders happened to have convened at the United Nations. And some of them had their own private conversations with each other, and they decided, that let's convene a conference and reach a resolution in support of our brothers and sisters in, in the Holy Land, in Palestine. Now, one of these leaders in, in, in this le- this conference was basically the brainchild of three of these elective, elected leaders. The President of Turkey, the Prime Minister of Malaysia and the Prime Minister of Pakistan and right before this, con- this conference was to take place one of these three leaders who called for the conference pulled out of it he just simply pulled out of the conference and why did he pull out of it? Because those who have a hold of the purse strings of that particular country called him to Riyadh. They had a conversation. But the end result of the conversation was that he called the organizers of the conference saying that he was not going to be able to make it. And keep in mind is that he is one of the three leaders who pushed to have this conference. And so now, if they reach a resolution, whether it's in support of Palestine or whether it's in support of the Muslims in China or what have you, how much weight is it going to carry if one of its founders is not party to signing the resolutions that were reached? But I don't think that we are asking ourselves about the moral fitness of our elected leaders. And the reason that we're not asking ourselves these types of questions is because we don't recognize how the world that we live in is set up. And especially our leaders, they don't recognize it. The world that we're living in today If I had to simplify it to its very basics, the world that we're living in today is composed of two worldviews. There is the exclusivist Israeli worldview, and there is the inclusivist Islamic worldview. Every country, every faction, every group falls in line behind one of these two worldviews. Even. A country as powerful and as industrial and as technologically advanced as the United States falls in behind one of these two worldviews. One could say that the United States could control could create its own worldview. And that's true, it could. But in the world that we live in today, it falls squarely in the domain of the exclusivist Israeli worldview. Which means that the Israelis are leading and the Americans are following. Of course, the Islamic worldview is represented and led by Islamic Iran. Now the reason that I bring this up is is if we look around the world today, we see that the dominant power culture has endorsed the exclusivist, the racist, the exceptionalist Israeli worldview. Let me give you some examples. We know that the nexus of this whole thing, the Zionist colonizers of the Holy Land, that they just recently, a few months ago, passed a citizenship law. the object of exclusion of that law are Muslims. Nobody in the world has any doubt about this. That law is aimed at excluding the indigenous Muslims who that territory belongs to, to transfer them, to move them out. And not to be outdone, and seeing that there is an opportunity that presented itself, The Indian government just recently passed its own citizenship law. And once again, the object of exclusion of that law are Muslims. Once again, nobody has any doubt about that. A plethora of articles have been written about it. And all of them reach the conclusion that the objective of this law, the citizenship law in India, is to exclude Muslims. We see the same thing going on in China, although there it's not a religious extremism, there it's an ideological extremism. Where they're forcing all the people in that society to conform to a particular ideology. And once again, the object of that exclusionary tactic or the or the the most visible public face of that exclusionary tactic are the Muslims who happen to live in Northwest China. And we see the same thing going on in Myanmar. The object of their exclusionary laws are the Rohingya Muslims. And again, we see the same thing going on in Europe and the United States. Who is the declared enemy of the white nationalists? Certainly they bombed a couple of synagogues, but on the whole, the hatred and the animosity of white nationalists is directed at Muslims. They view the Muslims as public enemy number one. In fact, all of these exclusivists and exceptionalists around the world They have gone to the extent of suggesting that if there were no Muslims in the world, the world would be a lot better place. And so the question that we have to ask is why are all these racists and exclusivists of all different stripes and colors? Why is there animosity and hatred directed to the Muslims? I just went over a large number of them from from all sides, from all places on earth. From China all the way to the United States. They are exclusivists and racists, but the object of their hatred are the Muslims. And why is this the case? Well, the answer to that question is pretty simple. The, mo- the Muslims, whether they're poor or whether they're of belong to this country or that, the, mo- the Muslims are the most visible agents of a system that represents an existential threat to this particular worldview to the exclusivist worldview. And that system of course that I'm referring to is Islam. Wherever in the world, the Muslims have had a chance to conduct free and fair elections and they've had this chance a few times not because the power culture in the world wanted to permit it it happened despite the power culture in the world and all that they would do to prevent such an event from happening wherever the Muslims have had free and fair elections They have always confirmed in the public representatives that they have chosen that there is only one God and that God is Allah and that human beings are in a subordinate position to that God and therefore it is the authority of that God and His guidance and His law that is going to form the basis of governments in those societies. They are the only ones, when given the chance, to have free and fair elections, who have confirmed this point. And why is this important? Allah has chosen for Himself no individual as a son. Allah has chosen for Himself No race as his people. Allah is equally accessible to all races, all individuals, all human beings. And so is his Quran and so is his Prophet Muhammad. All three of these are equally accessible to all races, all classes, all body politics, all generations. And because he is equally accessible to all races and all generations, this deconstructs all ethnicities, all racism, all classism, all nationalism. I mean, it deconstructs the very basis of this opposing worldview, this exclusivist worldview. It's racism. It's classism, it's nationalism. When it intellectually deconstructs all of this. And it's, and their advocates, the advocates of racism and classism. When they can't compete in the intellectual and scriptural arena. And prove their point as intelligent people ought to prove their point. When they can't compete in that arena then they prefer the arena of war. And it is off the arena of war and the domain of war that they profit. And so why would they allow that opposing inclusivist world view to have a germination point or to have a birth any place on earth? And that is the reason that all of these myriad exclusivisms all across the world, that is the reason that the object of their hatred is Islam and Muhammad and the Muslims who today have very little power and influence to be able to protect themselves or defend themselves. Allahumma <laughs> arina al-haqqa haqqan warzukna at Wa arina al-batila batilan warzukna ajtinabah اللهم اغفر للمؤمنين والمؤمنات الأحياء منهم والأموات إنك قريب سميع مجيب دعوات اللهم ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وحب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما بارَكْت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواسوا بالحق وتواسوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائثين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان و ايتا اذا القربى وينها عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله اكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون واقم الصَّلَاةِ الله اكبر الله اكبر اشهد ان محمد رسول الله حي على الصلاه حي قد Allah Akbar Allahu Akbar لا اله الا الله